I'm Neil Orford, and welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for August 2015. This is where we go through the critical care literature for the last month and see what caught our eye. So let's start with time to epinephrine and survival after paediatric in-hospital cardiac arrest. So in the US, approximately 16,000 children have a cardiac arrest each year with non-shockable rhythms most common, that is PEA and asystole. And they're associated with a 25 to 40% survival to hospital discharge. Adrenaline is recommended at 0.01 milligrams per kilogram as soon as possible, repeated every three to five minutes. In adults, delay in adrenaline is associated with worse outcomes in in-hospital cardiac arrest. And the authors hypothesise that this may be the case for paediatrics. So this analysis of the Get With The Guidelines registry examined 1,558 paediatric patients that was less than 18 years of age with an in-hospital cardiac arrest and an initial shockable rhythm who received at least one dose of adrenaline. And their goal was to examine the relationship between timing of adrenaline and outcome. So they report that the median age was nine months the median time to first dose was one minute. The median, median time to chest compression was zero minutes. And the survival to discharge was 31.3%. Longer time to adrenaline was significantly associated with a lower risk of survival to discharge in an unadjusted analysis. So relative risk per minute delay of 094 and after multivariate logistic regression, this remains significant with a relative risk of 0.95, 95% confidence intervals of 0.93 to 0.98, p-value less than 0.001. Return of spontaneous circulation occurred in 63.7% of children, and increasing time to adrenaline was associated with a decreased risk of return of spontaneous circulation. Favourable neurological outcome at hospital discharge was reported in 15.6% and increasing time to adrenaline was associated with less survival with favourable outcome. Analysis of adrenaline as a categorical variable, that is less than 5 minutes, which was 85% of patients, or greater than 5 minutes, which was 15% of patients, revealed a difference in survival to hospital discharge. That was 33.1 versus 21.0%. After multivariate analysis, less than five minutes was associated with better return of spontaneous circulation, but not favorable neurological outcome at hospital discharge. So overall, this observational study reports better survival with earlier adrenaline in a select group of paediatric cardiac arrest patients, that is, in hospital, shockable rhythm, able to be resuscitated and receiving adrenaline at a median of one minute. It is reasonable to try and deliver early adrenaline and associated APLS in this setting. Although it's reasonable to hypothesise these results could be translated to the much larger population of out-of-hospital, non-shockable rhythm paediatric cardiac arrest, they are clearly very different populations in regards to comorbidity, mechanism of arrest and time to response. Okay, sticking with JAMA, we have 
a review article, and we don't normally talk about them, but it was a fairly quiet month, so we've got a few to look at. So this is Septic Shock Advances in Diagnosis and Treatment. So this review article takes us through the advances in the diagnosis, treatment and areas of uncertainty relating to septic shock from 2010 to 2015. The authors conducted a systematic review relating to the topics and came up with the following. There were 35 relevant articles identified that proved major advances in the diagnosis and treatment of septic shock. The diagnostic advances were considered in the domains of initial evaluation and clinical features. So there's consensus guidelines including suspected or documented infection accompanied by arterial hypotension and evidence of tissue hypoperfusion. However, there is a great deal of variability and no reference standard. So maybe that's an area that needs work. In terms of primary hemodynamic manifestations, monitoring may clarify primary physiologic manifestations of septic shock. And again, there's a lack of consensus about the role of various devices. Overall, the pulmonary artery catheter is out, the mixed venous oxygen catheter has weak evidence, and non-invasive devices like ultrasound pulse contour analysis have weak evidence. In terms of markers of tissue injury, lactate is widely used and included in the 2014 ESICM SCCM definition of septic shock, although the specific threshold for diagnosing, uh, diagnosis and monitoring remains unknown. In terms of other areas of uncertainty, from a biologic perspective, no definition or cutoff point for shock is perfect and the definitions used in trials do create arbitrary cutoffs. The addition of biologic phenotypes like immunophenotyping, genome-wide expression mosaics or clinico-metabolomic profiles could improve sensitivity. They then moved on to therapeutic advances. Many factors have contributed to improving mortality rates with adults generally receiving immediate intravenous access, fluid administration, vasopressors and care directed at restoring adequate circulation. Major advances include crystalloids. There is evidence that chloride restrictive fluid may be superior to chloride liberal fluid and the split study is testing balanced crystalloids versus normal saline. Colloids, the Albios post hoc analysis of septic shock patients suggests improved 28-day mortality with albumin. Crystal reported no difference of crystalloid versus colloid and chest reported harm with starch. So overall, starch is harmful. Albumin may be of benefit or equivalent. Vasopressors, dopamine resulted in greater mortality compared to noradrenaline. Vasopressin added to noradrenaline was safe but not superior to noradrenaline alone. Protocols, current guidelines and expert opinion recommend clinicians incorporate a structured approach included initial management of rapid recognition, prompt antibiotics, obtainment of cultures and controlling of the infection source. The ARISE, PROCESS and PROMISE trials suggest that adding early goal-directed therapy beyond these measures confers no survival advantage. Adjuncts, there has been a failure to demonstrate benefit 
with APC and TLR4 antagonists. The use of corticosteroids remains debated with ongoing studies. Uncertainty, they recognise timing and volume of resuscitated fluids remains unknown and the ideal balance remains unknown and resuscitation goals remain unknown. So they finish up with a clinical bottom line. One, in terms of diagnosis, septic shock is an emergency event requiring prompt clinical diagnosis. Two, focused ultrasonography may assist in early shock diagnosis and alert clinicians to underlying physiological disturbance. Three, invasive, e.g. pulmonary artery catheter and non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring devices are only recommended for use in select subgroups of septic shock. And four, lactate is widely used in shock assessment but deserves further evaluation of its specific role in diagnostic and treatment algorithms. In terms of treatment, the first step in the treatment of septic shock is promptly addressing suspected or documented infection. Protocol-guided fluid resuscitation in septic shock is not superior to management by clinical assessment without a protocol, and a variety of crystalloid fluids or albumin are recommended in septic shock while starch solutions may be associated with worse outcomes. Okay, let's move away from reviews. And There's an article in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, looking at a monoclonal antibody for dabigatran reversal. So the new non-vitamin K oral anticoagulant thrombin inhibitors have challenged acute health providers because of difficulty reversing their effects when bleeding occurs. Idarucizumab, a monoclonal antibody fragment, binds dabigatran with 350 times the affinity of thrombin, neutralising its effect. A prospective cohort study examined the effect of idarucizumab, 2 times 2.5 gram boluses, as 50 ml infusions, no more than 15 minutes apart, on reversal of the anticoagulant effects of dabigatran in 90 patients with serious bleeding or who required urgent surgery. In this elderly cohort, the median age was 76.5 years of patients with intracranial hemorrhage, GIT bleeding, trauma and, and other causes, the administration resulted in a median maximum percentage reversal of 100%, normalising dilute thrombin time in about 95% of patients with the effect evidenced in minutes. The reversal effect was present at 24 hours in 80% of patients. In bleeding patients, homeostasis was reported at a median of 11.4 hours and operative patients were reported as having normal homeostasis in 33 out of 36. There was one thrombotic adverse event reported within 72 hours in a patient in whom antithrombotics had been restarted. So in summary, idarucizumab rapidly and completely reversed the anticoagulant effect of dabigatran in over 90% of patients with a safe profile. So that's a pretty exciting development for critical care clinicians. Therapeutic hypothermia in deceased organ donors and kidney graft function, another article in the New England Journal of Medicine. 
So delayed graft function defined as a requirement for dialysis in the recipient within seven days is reported in up to 50% of kidney transplant recipients from brain-dead donors. This prospective trial randomly assigned 370 organ donors to one of two targeted temperature ranges, 34 to 35 degrees Celsius, which was hypothermia, or 36.5 to 37.5 degrees Celsius, normothermia. In the temperature protocols, they were initiated after authorization was obtained for the organ to be donated and ended when organ donors left the intensive care unit for organ recovery in the operating room. The study was terminated early on the recommendation of an independent data and safety monitoring board after the interim analysis had showed efficacy of hypothermia. At baseline, the groups were well matched, other than the hypothermia group had significantly higher GFR prior to transfer to the operating room. The primary outcome was delayed graft function in the kidney recipients and hypothermia group it was 28% versus the normothermia group 39% odds ratio 0.62 95% confidence intervals 0.43 to 0.92 p-value of 0.02. Secondary outcome proportion of recipients of two kidneys did not differ there was lower delayed graft function in the expanded criteria donors and the overall number of organs transplanted from each donor and the rates of organs transplanted were similar. So in summary, this prospective RCT showed that donors with targeted temperature of 34 to 35 degrees Celsius had a statistically and clinically significant improvement in recipient renal transplant function compared to 36.5 to 37.5 degrees Celsius. This effect was most pronounced on the highest risk donors, that is, expanded criteria. So it is plausible that hypothermia results in reduced ischemia, reperfusion injury, and that is what they observed. So that's a pretty interesting study and may have implications on the management of patients in the future. Finally, in critical care medicine, we have mortality in multi-centre critical care trials and analysis of interventions with a significant effect. So this systematic review set out to identify all RCTs that reported mortality effect in adult critically ill patients. The methodological aspects of these studies and the translation into clinical practice. So what they did is they identified 15 multi-centre RCTs that fulfilled the following criteria. One, they were published in a peer-reviewed journal. Two, they had a multi-centre RCT design. Three, they dealt with non-surgical interventions in adult critically ill patients. And four, there was a statistically significant reduction or increase in unadjusted landmark mortality. A core group of experts participated in a face-to-face -face consensus conference to review the selected articles, and this is what they found. Treatments that decreased mortality, and there were seven. One, non-invasive ventilation for specific populations with acute respiratory failure. There were eight RCTs in multiple populations, although the treatment effect was dependent on the effect in COPD patients. 2. Mild hypothermia after cardiac arrest. 
Three, prone positioning. Four, low tidal volume ventilation in ARDS, three RCTs, all interrupted after interim analysis due to benefit. Five, tranexamic acid in patients with or at high risk of traumatic hemorrhage shock. Six, daily interruption of sedatives in critically ill patients. And seven, albumin administration in cirrhotic patients with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. In terms of the treatments that increased mortality, there were eight. One, diaspirin cross-linked haemoglobin in traumatic hemorrhagic shock. Two, hydroxyethyl starch in septic shock. Three, ventilation with high-frequency oscillation. Four, IV subutamol and ARDS. Five, glutamine supplementation. Six, growth hormone treatment. Seven, supranormal systemic oxygen delivery. And eight, intensive insulin therapy. The characteristics of the selected trial, 30% were blinded, and blinding was associated with larger trials, that is a median of 532 versus 106 patients, and involved more centres, a median of 26 versus 5. Non-blinded trials were more likely to show a mortality benefit, and of note, unblinded trials studied devices or strategies that were difficult to blind. So that's not surprising. RCTs showing an increased mortality involved more centres and enrolled almost five times more patients than those showing decreased mortality. Overall sample size was small. The median was 199 patients and 10 centres. The duration of follow-up varied greatly from 48 hours to one year and was not related to outcome. The median absolute risk reduction for interventions that decreased mortality was 0.12, relative risk reduction of 0.53. The median absolute risk reduction for interventions that increased mortality was 0.11, relative 0.4. The median number needed to treat was 7, number needed to harm was 9. There was no statistically significant correlation between effect size and outcome or blinding and there was a statistically significant correlation between trial size and effect size. They did a web-based survey, and this was an interactive web questionnaire. It was developed to explore if clinicians agreed or disagreed with the validity of each intervention and whether they used or avoided each intervention in clinical practice. In total, 555 clinicians from 61 countries responded to the survey. 80% were specialists, and major countries were represented were Australia, the US, and Italy. Trials showed decreasing mortality had a median agreement rate of 81.3%, and those showing increasing mortality had an agreement rate of 81.6%. Only 71% of those who agreed with the veracity of the effect of the selected intervention declared to routinely use or avoid them in clinical practice. So that is 30% who agreed with the effect didn't actually do it. In conclusion, overall there were 15 treatments that either decrease or increase mortality in critically ill patients in 24 multi-centre RCTs, with non-invasive ventilation alone having 8 
RCTs in support of a mortality decrease. Only seven were blinded and five were interrupted after an interim analysis. The findings suggest the need to increase size, centres, blinding and a need to assess unadjusted landmark mortality at a time that is remote from the intervention applied in ICU. These measures may improve robustness. Also, clinicians assessed trials with increased mortality as higher quality and there was surprisingly low application of some interventions. Protective ventilation was only 85%, transient gamic acid was only 56%, proning 55%, suggesting a need to address complex translational issues. Well, that's it for Journal Club for Critique for August 2015. Come to the website or we will see you next month. Thank you very much.